0: Welcome to Technically Minded, a podcast brought to you by Credera. We get technology leaders together to discuss what's happening in our world. Our discussions are fun, lighthearted, and frankly opinionated. But hopefully it gives you a sense of what matters, what to pay attention to, and what to ignore. Welcome Jason Goth, our resident CTO. Hey, Vincent. How are you doing today?
1: Happy Wednesday. It's, a, it's weird to be in here on a Wednesday.
0: Yeah, it is weird. We normally record a little bit later in the week, but travel I guess. I want to talk about something a little bit different today. Okay. Let's talk about what's going on in the world. All right. And if you haven't noticed something big happened. Two, three big things happened. Well at least two. I think there's a third bit more. I hope
1: we're talking about in the world of technology because (laughs) I'm not very qualified to talk on any other topic.
0: Yeah. In the world of technology Adobe purchased another company called Figma for a price tag a whopping 20 billion dollars this happens to be the largest acquisition i think ever and it's at least depending on how you count this you know if you include the depreciation of of adobe the stockholders what they didn't like it's obviously they sold, so the price went down if you include that we're talking about you know a third of the entire value of adobe has now been wiped away in order to acquire figma this 10 year old startup that's growing like a weed. What is going on from your perspective?
1: Yeah, it was pretty amazing. The product obviously is a great product. It's had incredible growth recently, but I think the bigger question is like, why is it such a great product? And I think there's a couple aspects to that. One, they're obviously very focused on their customers and building a good customer experience as any product should be. But I think from a fundamental technology perspective, The solution was designed to be what I'll call web native and cloud native. It it was meant to be used over the internet in a browser, collaborative with other people over the internet, and built on a backend cloud platform that provides a lot of scalability and performance.
0: And so why is that, I mean, that sounds good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Not, yeah. nothing wrong with any of those things, but why is that worth a third of all of Adobe in your mind? I mean, Adobe does a lot of stuff, right? I mean, they have the Photoshop, they have the Illustrator, all of the Creative Suite. Now, again, I think part of their part of this is isn't is is the answer from my perspective, which is those things used to be great. They you know was a student could get them for a reasonable price. Now it's all cloud subscription based, but they made they seem to navigate that transition actually pretty well. I mean, they upset people like me who's you know. Very old license, but still navigates it pretty well. And they have all the marketing stuff and they have all of the analytics stuff. And how is, this, how is this one design tool worth a third?
1: You know, I think if you look at some of the existing products, Creative Cloud and others, they're not really cloud products. They were originally developed on a desktop or acquired. They have different backends, different platforms, and they have to some extent been made to work you know, in a distributed fashion over the internet, but that's not at the core of their design. And I think that eventually you run out of the ability to update them in that model, right? And
0: uh, as you're saying, your point is like, look, Adobe has moved that to the cloud. Yes, they've changed their commercial model, but the core tenants that the foundation, if you will, of their working part, the entire working paradigm for designers and graphic designers and illustrators and others, is actually still very desktop, one person at a time oriented in and, and Figma wasn't. They were really the opposite.
1: Right. Yeah. One way to think of it is I like to use the phrase, is it built in or bolted on? And I think for a lot of the legacy Adobe products, all of those capabilities, whether it be collaboration or working in the cloud, those are things that were bolted on. But they're not fundamentally if they're core designed to work. Web native in the cloud. Whereas I think Figma that was built in, it was built on those platforms. And so I think it's somewhat of a foundation. You think of it as, a, you know, you drive down the road these days, you see these giant foundations poured for all the warehouses that are building in Dallas. And you know that, well, that one's not there, but there's going to be something there one day. And you know, there's pipes coming up for, Mm -hmm. you know, places for whatever they're, they're building. Well, in, in a lot of ways, it's the same. I think it's it's designed on a platform that allows for them to grow and scale immensely. Whereas I think you're probably with some of the legacy products more on the diminishing returns part of that graph.
0: So I hear you. They are cloud native. They, they're, well, they're an older company. They're 10 years old. I mean, it took them a long time to actually find the product market fit. But nevertheless, even 10 years ago, they're cloud native. The question then in my mind is really does it matter that much? Like, why couldn't Adobe just re-architect their software today and build it to be truly cloud-native, to be multi-user, multi-edit, et cetera? I mean, look, when I was at Microsoft, I joined at a moment when Google Apps looked like it actually might might win. <laughs> like There was a distinct possibility that this whole online cloud-native multi-editor thing was going to really take over the world and small businesses were adopting it in Drift. Now, I think that was partly the commercial. They gave it for free, but still, it looked like they were going to win. And so, the early days of SharePoint Online, this is a little bit of esoteric uh, history for you, but you'll appreciate it, Jason. The early days of SharePoint Online, which was their first move, Microsoft Office's first move to the cloud, it literally, when you provisioned a new tenant, new customer set up, or provision a tenant, it literally stood up a machine in the, in the Microsoft cloud that installed Windows, <laughs> that installed all the code that you would need to run SharePoint, and it said, oh, great, you're now in the cloud, you're just running this on our version of it, right? It was basically a managed instance of some VM for you. And we tried doing the same with the Office apps, but of course it didn't work, because what we knew at that moment is The thing people really seem to appreciate, because these products, by the way, Google products those days were not pretty. They were not nice. They were very feature light. You could do almost nothing. But people adopted them because you could co-edit. I could take a document across the world, open it up, share it with you, and we could write together at the same time. And while that sounds like it's not a big deal, like who really, you're not going to write a paper together at the same time, it turned out to be a massive feature. And so we said, well, okay, what we have to actually do then is re-architect Office from the ground up in the cloud with these functions. And it required incredible things, by the way. I remember getting into a conversation with one of our senior engineers at the time and she was explaining to me how the function save, like this very core simple thing, had to be entirely re-architected because you couldn't save in the same way. I I had to be able to co-author and merge these things together in some novel way that, You know, legacy desktop word didn't have to contemplate nevertheless they did it i mean office 365 is actually a great product now and you can use it and i think ultimately ended up winning that that battle they saved their lunch as it were but why couldn't adobe just do the same thing
1: well i think they could and i think that's a great example when you look at the office suite outlook is great online you know word and powerpoint or they work online but um but think about how long that took, right? Mm-hmm. And the amount of effort and resources that it took to build Outlook sure. Excel Word online. I don't I don't know what the answer is, but I guess it's billions of dollars and it's, it's probably, you know, going on year ten mm-hmm. of that. I think the challenge with Adobe is I don't think they believe they had that long.
0: Ah. Uh, okay. Right? Because FIG, Figma
1: was really taking on a lot of those features and there are others as well, you know, other, I wouldn't be surprised if there weren't other acquisitions of other tools. I think that's the way they've decided to address the competitor problem is acquire. That's always been their strategy, right? They've, they've acquired a lot of things sure. as opposed to try and re-architect it from the ground up. But to your point, it doesn't mean you couldn't, you certainly could. Yeah. I think it well, just takes I, longer.
0: I wonder When we look at organizations that you've consulted with before, talked to before, where they were going through some truly existential crisis, frankly, is what it really turned out to be for Office at that moment. And I suspect for Adobe, I don't know anybody there, to be clear, but I suspect for them at the moment too. And if you look at their earning calls, their CEO is is trying to downplay some of these things over the past few quarters, but I think is getting worried. The issue in Office at the time was fundamentally cultural it was really hard to get people, the engineers who were coding this day in, day out, to actually believe that we needed to be mobile and cloud first. This I Remember when Satya first took over as CEO after Balmer, this was one of the things he, he sort of changed in the company is everything to be on Azure, everything to be cloud, everything to be mobile. And so I'm curious, when you see these acquisitions, is, it, is part of that not only the architectural technical challenges but the cultural and people challenges as well and then, how do you? If so, assuming yes, how do you actually integrate it in a way that the incumbents don't feel entirely displaced, or "well, we bought you; you need to listen to us" kind of thing?
1: I think it's definitely cultural, as, as much as anything. You know, I think about uh, Blockbuster versus Redbox and Netflix. Blockbuster essentially had a monopoly right. <laughs> for all intents and purposes, and the reasons that i mean blockbuster did at one point launch a streaming platform but the reason it didn't take off is because they would never invest in it right fully to really replace the core business Mm. right i don't know if you'd call that the innovator's dilemma but essentially do you want to kill the cash cow and invest all your money in, in something else. Sure. That's a hard decision from a business perspective when you have, especially if you're a public company, you have shareholders clamoring for dividends, right?
0: Yeah, you raise a great point. And I think, you know, part of what made Microsoft successful, I suspect, is that they didn't believe it was an existential crisis. At least at the most senior levels, they believed it was important. I wonder, you know, Figma, while it's a lot like the other Adobe products, it, it does feel a little bit different. Like I don't, I don't know that I is an IT person or even as an executive at a company would, would say, Hey, why are we buying Adobe and we're buying Figma? And so I wonder if that comes into the calculus at all from your perspective.
1: Yeah, that's what I meant by, I don't think they had the runway. I think they, they did, they did recognize them as an existential threat. And once you do that, you've got the choice of to buy it or try to rebuild and rapidly rebuild. And I don't Again, this is all pure speculation on my part, but I, I don't think that they thought that they could get there in the time that they had.
0: Yeah, well, it'll be super interesting to watch and see what happens there. I am, I am really intrigued to see what happens in the integration part. This is something that I've lived through. To your point of Yammer, and you know, the first year and a half, often they kind of leave you alone. That's the standard M and A play. I, if it's an existential crisis from the Adobe perspective and they're trying to infuse some of that cultural, I don't know that they can leave them alone. And does that end up being too disruptive and destroy the ramp they have or what? I don't know. It'll be really interesting to watch though and see how they try to navigate that.
1: Yeah, well, I, I think of it more from trends that might impact our clients, which there's the move to to SaaS, web-based software. You know, I think everyone has gotten comfortable with that Salesforce, Workday, you know, you name it. But more so from like some of the core systems that clients run themselves, right? I think they're going to have to start really evaluating. Is there going to be, if I use a core, you know, some core platform to run my business, is someone going to disrupt that with a more modern technology? Yeah. Yeah, you know, if you, if you sell, if your business is to sell software and it, and that software has to download on someone's laptop and install. Like You, need, you might think really hard about uh, changing that.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. Everything just seems to be sort of credit card swipeable It just runs. It just natively runs. That's interesting. And
1: that's even more so for really complex software that, you know, let's think something that has to have an IT team of 20 people to build out infrastructure to install it and spend weeks configuring it. Mm-hmm. Right? Those are you know that there's always going to be the need for that in some cases, of course, but more and more and more it's where's the API here's the contract let me start sending API calls and I expect that thing to scale infinitely and that's a that's a part that doesn't get talked about as much. When you're you know installing software on a desktop it only has to run on that one desktop sure. right and word installed it ran on this desktop if you meet the specs okay it would run we need to sell 10 million copies that's great because our customers have 10 million desktops mm-hmm. when you start saying well we're going to host it and you're going to access it over the web well now you've got to h- provide the scale
0: but doesn't it actually get easier like meaning look all i have to do is make sure it runs on chrome and safari i guess so safari like and you're done and like i control all of the other widgets around it yeah. or no
1: well i'd say that making sure it runs on chrome and safari is never easier <laughs> never easy <laughs> <Fair enough. laughs> but
0: but it seems like it'd be simpler than all the versions of windows all the versions of mac os all the versions of linux all yep. the versions of et cetera, et cetera. like the common the common of that I feel like it would be easier if it's only one browser
1: well, yeah, you're talking about supportability over different versions, which I agree is easier. But what I'm talking about is scale in terms of capacity. Right? Oh, your point is like, like,
0: look, if somebody builds an uh, an Excel, like some financial analyst builds an Excel that's 87 terabytes or something insane, if it's on their desktop, it's really not my problem. I don't care is is the vendor if you're hosting it, suddenly that's your problem, as the vendor. That, that's what you're saying. Yeah,
1: storage is one thing, but also compute capacity. I love the. There was a IBM commercial way back in the day. I can't. Right at the beginning of e-commerce, I need to find this on YouTube and post it. But they they had an IBM team. I think this was a Super Bowl commercial, actually, <laughs> where the IBM team builds an e-commerce site and they they launch it and they're all watching the screen and they're like, and it comes up and it says one order and they're all like really excited and it says like two, three, four orders, you know, it's kind of the flip things like on the old alarm clocks and they're like four orders, you know, and then all of a sudden it's like 10 orders and they're all excited and all of a sudden it's 300 orders and then they kind of pause. They all start looking at each other and all of a sudden it's a thousand <laughs> orders and then they all start freaking out like, what are we going to do? And that's the challenge with software of the web. The great thing is we could sign up a hundred thousand new customers tomorrow. The challenge is we could sign up a hundred thousand new customers tomorrow and we have to have the capacity for that. Well, that's where the cloud native part comes in, right? We talked about the What you're talking about is the web native part of Mm -hmm. the front end. The cloud native part allows you to have that scale, right? Because the cloud vendors can, can provide you virtually unlimited scale. And that's, that's a part of the cloud that I think people often underestimate or don't think about a lot of people when they look at the cloud, they think of cost. Mm-hmm. Is it going to save me cost or time? Is it going to save me time or is it going to allow me to pay for things in an OPEX model instead of a CAPEX model, which are all you know good valid things to think about. I'm not criticizing that, but the one thing you, you cannot do on your own is get that kind of scale okay, let's go, we had 100,000 people sign up yesterday, let's go buy 10,000 hard drives and have them shipped here. Well, see in four months, the way things are taking to get shipments around now, but I think there's that's another thing as people look at building things, not only web first, collaboration included, but very much cloud-based on the back end.
0: Got it. That makes a lot of sense, and I, yeah, I think that's a, it's a great point. And I guess if you build these things cloud-native, you get that nominally for free, right? Absolutely. Well, it, I wouldn't switch topics then, but it leads into my second topic, which I didn't prep you for, so Okay, good I'm luck. really
1: excited about this. You know?
0: <laughs> It'll be awesome. I came across an article just earlier this week, and the argument of this author was effectively that IT has seen its heyday and now it's time to retreat. No, I mean, really, this was a bit of his point, but his meta point was actually like, IT's become so critical to every part of the business that it should stop being being centralized and should actually be distributed. Meaning this idea of shadow IT that's existed for a long time is actually sort of the free market solution to the problem and we should stop trying to centralize it all the time. You with me? I am. So, exactly to your point, like, look, if we start thinking about our products as being cloud native, if we start requiring our vendors to be cloud native, if we start buying stuff, if we could start buying stuff from our vendors through a credit card swipe and not worry about all of the back end infrastructure do I have to install a hard drive? Do I have to provision a tenant, Do I have to do all these things? Then, in some sense, it sounds like actually you're making this guy's argument for him but I don't know if that's what you believe. So I'll pass it over to you and I'll put that by the, way, I'll put a link to the article in the, in the notes of the show.
1: Yeah, it's a good question. You know, obviously marketing has always tend to, to work with the marketing vendors and, and build solutions. There are a lot of what you would call, you know, citizen developer, low code solutions. We, yeah, I think we did a pod about those. And while I, I'm not, Quite sure I agree with that. I do think the idea of having technologists sit in the business units closer to the business is a good idea. I mean, that's essentially some of the original tenets of Agile itself, mm-hmm. right? And so I'm not, a, I do agree that maybe things need to be more distributed out into the business units and less centralized as an IT function. Sure. And your technology companies that build products like Figma or netflix right they do take that kind of approach they have more of these cross-functional teams you know with the product owners the business owners essentially and others all work together i do think that's a good approach now i don't take it so far as to be a complete free-for-all okay this team picks to run with this technology in azure and that team picks to run with this technology in google there, there are some economies of scale you get by building essentially with very similar patterns or built around the same set of standards. I did a talk at spring one, four or five years ago, I can't remember where we talked about working with a company that was doing that kind of thing. They had several different products they were, they were trying to build. And one of the real enablers we got, were having like a centralized team that essentially published toolkits and patterns and for the actual business units to then go use. So I, I do is, think there's a, that's sort a, of
0: like the center of excellence idea. Is that?
1: Yes. But I, when I think center of excellence, I think more like people that sit around a table and tell you what you're doing wrong. Like these were actual
0: ivory <laughs> style. ivory yeah, tower style.
1: These are teams that are actually publishing self-service artifacts. For example, at this client, we had some scripts where if you needed a new service, there was a, set of scripts you could run, it would create it, register it, give you everything you needed, scaffold it, essentially.
0: Like Terraform or something back in the day?
1: uh, Absolutely. Um, All written in uh, (laughs) Perl, but uh, it's been a while. But those things, I think, are extremely helpful. They're, They're not barriers or gates to the business teams doing innovation, they're essentially enablers. And they can handle some of the things like security, authorization, some things that the business units don't want to have. You don't want everyone reinventing the wheel.
0: Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Like you only want to have one SSO provider, et cetera. Exactly. One VPN. Got it. The The interesting thing. So I, I didn't know you're going to be quite on on board with that as, as I am, which is too bad because my next question won't make a ton of sense then, but it's related, which is, do you think that the cloud vendors believe that? And my point of that is, they keep trying to consolidate everything. So I can imagine a world in which, you know, Microsoft keeps buying people, uh, Google keeps buying people, Adobe keeps buying people, and so these major providers just keep consolidating, 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 using bundling and other techniques and pricing to basically dominate the market. Do you think they they believe the same? Is that what they're concerned about? Do you think like they're worried that people will ultimately decentralize this to the point that? Hey, if I don't actually have the best product back to the lockup that Microsoft has because of exchange, if I don't have the best product, I can no longer price my way to keeping the market. People will just switch over to the products and I'm to go through IT. They don't care.
1: I do think that's probably on their minds. I don't know. I think there's a difference between products that all businesses use that are somewhat cost of doing business, things like email. Mm-hmm and products that you build as your offering like Netflix. I do think there will be a consolidation of things like HR and IT and the service now is pretty ubiquitous. Workday is getting more and more ubiquitous. ADP provides payroll and and companies cloud companies may buy those and and start rolling those up just like the old Oracle roll up play of just sure. go buy everything.
0: All right.
1: I think that will happen, but at some point there are going to be things that are differentiating that people are going to want to build, i.e. your product like Netflix or Google. Well,
0: so so that's interesting. I wanna I wanna decouple that a little bit. Are you saying that for internal tools people are gonna build it or you're saying only external client facing? So for external example, client facing. Okay. So you think internal tools there will continue to be a consolidation?
1: And I think there's probably gonna that it's probably fine as a centralization candidate, right? You don't want like every division running their own email server.
0: No, I I agree conceptually, but I I wonder if that's really true because in this is more where I thought you were going to land, by the way. It's so good. You got to where I I set you up correctly. (laughs) (laughs) No, but my point there is, it seems to me that we've seen this consumer mentality in the consumer market. You absolutely have to have the best product to win. Because they just can't figure out how to lock consumers up long enough. Everything is month to month now. There are no contracts anymore. People like that choice. It's all freemium is the other thing, That's by the way. Right. You know, like If your product starts being terrible, as we've seen with Netflix, they haven't produced enough shows, guess what happens to the consumer? They say, see you later, I'm out. The enterprise, the business world hasn't been that way because there's a huge amount of upfront costs, like just actual integration costs, the change costs, and then contracts are naturally long as a result we have seen with devices that the consumer preference mentality has infiltrated the organization and IT has just been forced to deal with it. So remember like bring your own device used to be sure. a very controversial thing. There were no iPads. no, no door right. now everybody that's a standard policy and i think that we've seen benefits in how you build around that. My point here is like in a world where IT becomes increasingly decentralized i don't know what i don't know the causality direction here but it seems to me in that world it's actually easier to have a myriad of options that serve the business. So one part of the business might use, in the most extreme case, I suppose this would be pretty extreme. I don't think they will, but just conceptually, they might use ADP, and the other one might use a competitor. Why? Because like they think for whatever part of their business that's actually the right solution, and if it's all credit card swipeable, I don't have to do a bunch of integration work. I don't know. Maybe that works. Maybe it doesn't, though. What are your thoughts?
1: The difference between that and like a consumer facing product, let's say Netflix. Mm-hmm. If I switch from Netflix to Hulu or from FUBU to YouTube TV, I don't expect all of my shows that I've recorded to move over. Mm. But if you're cutting invoices or writing emails and you switch providers, you okay. do expect like you can't just yeah. get rid of all your old invoices, right? There's like mm. state and data that's persisted in those things
0: it's a good point i hadn't i hadn't contemplated that yeah the the sort of half life of the information that you've created while using that product is quite different in the consumer world versus the enterprise world Hmm. that's good i like that i like that kind of point the point
1: of ab adp versus a competitor though you know in that example like that may make sense geographically right tax is a great example there if we work with e-commerce sites there are lots of E-commerce. That's where we use different tax software in different regions Mm -hmm. because it just it just makes sense. But that I don't know that that would go to the you know email. Well, I don't know why not the
0: email though. Like, look, I mean, some people really love Gmail. They love the idea of tags. They love the idea of all these rules. Whatever, whatever. We've seen many people try and ultimately fail. Maybe that's your counterpoint. That that would be a fair one. But we've seen many people try to reskin email across all the providers say great here's your one inbox we'll just connect to everything else you're good to go you can now use our inbox behind the scenes it might still be exchanged but we recognize that it doesn't have the functionality you want no i mean people choose it that's what my only point is like people do choose these alternative yeah, I, solutions like i see what they, you're
1: saying but the the where the other thing comes in are things like let's say compliance well we need to keep things seven years for discovery and we need to implement a data loss prevention solution to make sure that things, and we need to implement a spam solution and we need to, and we need to, and we need to. And so when you start like multiplying those like peripheral things out for, you know, very valid reasons, whether it be, you know, cost or security or risk avoidance or that kind of thing, the costs multiply much more so than the is it just email. And so I, there may be some though. And 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 that's what I'm kind of my point to your original question is do things get distributed out all to the you know world to the different business units? My answer is there probably will always be some stuff that gets distributed out. There will probably be always some stuff that gets centralized and those need to make those make sense. You just need to look at each one and say, well what what do we get for centralizing? And what does it cost us and what do we get for distributing and what does it cost us there's there's no right answer but I think from a product development perspective which Mm -hmm. I think is more your point I do think there will be a trend to push more of that into individual product teams at the same time there's going to be more and more governance around those for things like security intrusion prevention privacy that are going to have to work somewhat in the dreaded matrix organization type fashion. I'm not sure how else that's going to work, right?
0: Yeah, that's fair. Last closing thought, and then we'll move on to the next topic. Here is, you know, I think that the the major concern that I have with this decentralized org is that, insofar as we still have application oriented or service oriented architectural designs across the company it will be a problem because what we actually care about is often data and the customer. And that's going to require information from all parts of the organization. And if each one of them has chosen their own set of solutions, whether that be marketing has chosen some CRM, some other people have chosen AWS, some other people have chosen GCP, some people have chosen whatever, it doesn't actually matter because we have to pull it back together. The integration costs just keep going up and up and up. And the difficulty of pulling data together in a way that is both rationalized and also up to date and accurate becomes increasingly complex. And we've seen this with marketing. We've seen now that marketing wants data from other parts of the org and these tools are intrinsically limited in what they can do. And it's difficult.
1: That's exactly what I meant by the, well, you want to keep all your invoices when you switch platforms. Also, if you have multiple platforms, you need to be able to say where are all the invoices, who's late. Mm -hmm. Right. And you don't really care who's late in this department, who's late in that department, right? If you're, if you're in finance. So yeah, it's the data that has to be centralized. Although I do think that is going to be a problem no matter what, mm-hmm. right? You're if, if my answer is true, which is some things will always be centralized. Some things will always be distributed in, in the the shift is probably more distributed. Now there is going to be a need to centralize data out of those distributed systems and you see that in some of the modern data architectures that that provide you know vendors like us or <laughs> some of the cloud vendors publish where there's a little bit more focus on some of that aggregation
0: yeah data oriented architecture we're gonna make this a thing Jason I promise. okay last topic that we have today just this past week, ethereum this is the cryptocurrency ethereum that enables, yeah, I would say it's probably the second most, maybe the most interesting to me personally, but maybe the second most popular, has finally done something quite amazing, didn't know if it was ever gonna happen, the merge. Tell us about that, Jason.
1: Well, I believe the reason you're bringing this up is I owe you some money because I bet you it would not go off very well. It would be a complete disaster. Uh, And I think they did an incredible job, it it seems so far, a weekend, to have gone off Without a hitch, which is pretty amazing engineering effort. Congratulations to those guys.
0: Yeah, no kidding. This was a major shift, by the way, right? So so if, just as a reminder for those listeners who may not be entirely up to date on this, all, uh, nominally, all cryptocurrencies today rely on proof of work, right? This is this idea that these computers have to solve a particularly hard math problem in order to add anything to the blockchain,
1: Gus guess a number between one and two to the 64. <laughs> and <laughs> right. if you get
0: the right one, you win and we're going to pay you. That's literally how this thing works. Awesome. The problem with that, of course, is that uh, a single transaction is incredibly expensive.
1: Uses a ton of energy
0: huge amount of energy to the point that like entire governments now with all of the stuff going on with the energy crisis have have made crypto illegal they've said you can't do this mining because you're wasting a bunch of electricity on this thing that we don't care about and people are can't heat their homes because the prices are so high so as a solution to that or a proposed solution to that before just a week ago there was this idea of proof of stake and the idea is something like Look, could we create a system where everybody gets a vote conceptually? And the number of votes is kind of like the number of tokens or number of dollars you have invested in the system. And if you think this transaction seems real and legitimate, then you're gonna stake your money conceptually against that transaction. And if you do that, you we're gonna pay you some fraction of a you know money just the way we have before. But it's an entirely new paradigm that again doesn't require as much electricity. Really fascinating, really big paradigm shift. And it seems where we can know. It actually seems like it went well beyond all doubt somehow. I don't know.
1: Yeah, it did go well or has been going well. I shouldn't put that in the past tense. But, <laughs> you know, proof of stake is interesting. I'm I'm interested to see, though, if it does. Well, it's it will certainly reduce the amount of energy that is used on the order of 99% of the energy that is used. Yeah, But I'm interested to see the unintended consequences of that, which the big one for me will be that in a system that was originally designed to democratize everything. Now the people with the most money are able to stake the most and will get all the transactions and the transaction fee. So you've essentially replicated the same problem that you were trying to resolve with proof of work. The proof of work idea was you are just as likely to guess a number between one and two to the 64 as I am. And so the money will go.
0: It's a lottery. Yeah.
1: The money will go randomly out to people guessing, you know, the number and it's not all going to be centralized into, you know, five or six gigantic banks. Well now, you're you're a validator you get preference for validation based on how much money you stake so the people that can stake the most money we get the most validations they'll earn the most crypto rewards you and i go set up a, a validator in our home are gonna and we'll stake my 50 bucks of ether that i think i have in in a address somewhere and we will never ever ever see a validation transaction
0: yeah so I I agree with you. I think in in rule you're exactly right. In practice, though, it seems like there's actually no difference here. Me- meaning that
1: the, the 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 vast number of miners were all in a few companies anyway. That's true.
0: Yeah, that's right. In in my point there is exactly that, which is like, look, in reality, what happened is that the rate of innovation for GPUs and then ultimately FPGAs, which again are these like very bespoke machines that can do exactly one thing, the rate of innovation in those spaces was dominated anything else. Meaning that whoever had the newest machines, which aren't cheap by the way, especially when there was so much competition because prices were going through the roof, and the cheapest electricity, and effectively the most capital to go to buy as many of those machines as you could, won anyway. And so to your point, like look, in in reality, you know, 89% of all the transactions were already just a few people, uh, a few of these corporations, which, by the way, probably are now all on the brink, if not already, on the brink of bankruptcy because they were doing these things on loan. On uh, Basically, they had staked some of their own money in this they'd received from mining to get huge loans and were highly, highly leveraged. And now the price has fallen out to the bottom, and we're, who knows what's going to happen.
1: That's the other thing I'm interested to see will happen if it will have a deflationary effect especially around the cost of this hardware. Mm-hmm. and So you have companies that have bought tens of thousands of machines with, with GPUs and FPGAs and
0: an entire all, buildings by the way. And they'd paid for the land and right. these sheds with cooling and, you know, directly wired big internet and, big electricity got these things and, right and right what right, are so those
1: so. things going to do now i might it might be interesting to see if they're able to somehow you know sell that to cloud providers or somehow leverage that capacity in other ways for well, you know they sure still a vast majority of the, of the cha- transactions that happen are bitcoin which is still proof of work so it's you know we're only talking about ethereum here but um, it is going to be if people start moving in that direction it will be interesting to see what happens to that entire mining yeah, industry.
0: Well, my guess is that it's like all other hardware. Like there will, pro- insofar as there is an excess of GPUs. GPUs, by the way, are used for other purposes too. Like machine learning is a great example where we use lots of GPU power, and it's not cheap because again, these cloud providers have historically been competing against crypto miners to buy the hardware from NVIDIA and others. And so, I do think that these things, as they come online, there'll probably be some secondary market where you could theoretically use them. On the other hand if you're an organization and you're doing some machine learning do you really want to pass your data to some random person that you know nothing about and like they just happen to be have some machines that are available for a cheaper rate i'm skeptical
1: yeah i, I did see i saw somewhere that there was maybe it was the wall street journal where people are trying to sell a lot of these managers are trying to sell off some excess capacity gpus and other things and they they can't sell them
0: yeah. I, I mean maybe universities or something they buy it, you know, for students. But I, I think the problem is the data the data issue, just like you're gonna pass them your critical data. I, uh maybe, maybe. We'll see.
1: Well then you have to turn yourself into a a cloud provider That's right. With all the appropriate you know, protections That's right. uh, between and, between but, tenants.
0: But then again, I mean my point there is like look the miners were already joined collectives anyway. Because even if you had, you know, a few hundred GPUs you're realistically not going to be able to find right. the right number in time. she so would sort of join a collective, a mining pool. So maybe those mining pools become the platform provider in some sense. They already have a lot of the architecture worked out. They already have the people, the customers. I don't know. We'll see.
1: Interesting times in crypto land.
0: It is. Well, thanks, Jason, for doing some topical stuff with me today. It was super fun for me, hopefully for you two listeners. Um, for those of you who would like to learn more, please visit the Insights page at credera.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again.